are listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael G. Moore. On this episode, I chat with David. David is an adoptee who, at the age of 30, began his search for his birth parents. His journey would take him from the east to the west of the USA and in between. He discovered many family members and learned the true story of his birth parents, a story with twists and turns that will set your head spinning. Through it, David received the loving support of his husband and relied on that love and his art to help see him through the rough times. Check out our website at www.inacitylikeyours.com. That's www.inacitylikeyours dot com for links to David's music and Facebook pages. You can also link to our Facebook group as well as our Twitter and Instagram accounts from the website. Now, join me as we journey through David's story of his search for his birth family. Uh, my name is David, and I live in Benicia, California. I'm an adult male adoptee. I was born in the baby boom of the 50s in Southern California. Mine was a tad different from most um, in that my parents, my adopted parents, always told me I was adopted, um, which was kind of starting to come into vogue about that time. But what made their version of it a little more interesting was they always told me who my birth parents were. Um, and, you know, as a small child, they said, um, you were adopted, we wanted you, um, your birth parents, and they named them. And I kind of took that as normal, and I found out it wasn't particularly normal um, as I shared that information with other kids at school, as children are wont to do. And um, later on in life, I found that I've met a lot of other adoptees. It's just a subject matter that seems to come up for some reason for me. And I found that that was also not exactly the norm. What happened was I, the information my parents told me over the years was um, that my parents were married, but that my birth father did not want to have a child, that he felt the child would be an annoyance and get in the way of his studies, and um, that, that he just very much didn't want a child. And my mother did, but um, he overrode that. And the other information that I was given from the state was that um, my birth mother said both of her parents were dead at the time of my birth, which she was 24. And my birth father said he was an orphan. So what this telegraphed to me was nobody lives particularly long in, on either side of the family. And I just kind of um, swept it under the rug. Um, I, it was, I learned kind of not to talk about that in elementary school because the kids were actually pretty, um, mean about it. Um, one of the kids said, wow, your own parents didn't want to keep you. You must've been just a horrible child that they wouldn't want to keep their own child. So that kind of got stuffed away. Um, fast forward to my thirties. Um, again, uh, several people I knew were um, adopted, and one woman in particular was attending an adoptee group and really wanted me to attend with her, and I was kind of disinterested, and then she said, well, the majority of people who search are women, and they really, really would like to have a guy attend the group, and again, I wasn't too thrilled, but I reluctantly agreed. 
And when I went, it was rather eye-opening because it was a mix of adoptees and also people who had put their kids up for adoption and hearing their stories, their regrets, um, kind of changed my thinking. But then what also flipped it was um, there was an ex-FBI agent um, who had put his children up for adoption. And he made his um, services available to everybody as he had come to regret his decision and wanted to help assist people in reunions if possible. So I um, contacted him and worked with him for about a week. And with the information I had and the information he had, he came up with absolutely nothing. And his conclusion was either my adoptive parents gave me erroneous information or for all he knew it was witness relocation and even joked that it might be alien abduction. And I kind of put that away. Then fast forward to um, almost my 50s and we were, my husband and I were doing our wills and it turned out that our lawyer had adopted his son. So again, the subject came up and my husband asked, what would the cost be of doing a search like this? Because he kind of knew that it was something hovering in the back of my mind and the lawyer said, could be upwards to 20,000 or above. Well, at that point, being close to 50, I, again, I, I went back to, I don't think people live very long and um, we just said, we'll pass. What kind of kicked everything into gear was um, circumstance in 2007. I was um, watching um, the news. I, I worked from home at that point as a web developer and um, the news kicked over to um, the Greg Barrett show. And he had written the book, He's Not That Into You, which, um, and I was aware of him also as being an author, as being one of the writers of Sex and the City. And I had bought the book thinking it would be kind of a humorous read, but actually it ended up almost being kind of a self-help book because what he pointed out to the women on Sex and the City and also in the book is that not everybody's into you. And I kind of had this aha moment when I realized my adoptive family never was that into me. I, people always talked about unconditional love, but mine was very conditional. And I was sort of a, a problem child for them early on because A, I wasn't theirs. And B, I was also, um, it was pretty obvious to all involved that I was gay and artistic. And that was sort of like the trifecta of... Uh, uh, so um, kind of coming to grips with the fact that my family wasn't that into me um, was very liberating. And watching the show, the subject matter was adoptive reunions. And I watched, and it was not a particularly um, helpful show. It was the usual telegenic young girl who wants a family connection. And at the end, the surprise reunion with a very telegenic aunt. And I was about to turn off, but at the very end, they posted a website they said you could go to and possibly find a reunion of sorts. And this was 2007, prior to the scrutiny and worry about privacy concerns. So um, I went to it and I posted all of the information I had, um, the hospital I was born in, the names that I had of my birth parents, my name, and went about my business. Um, about an hour later, phone rang and it was a call from Tennessee and I normally wouldn't pick up but I did and it was a woman who identified herself from I'll use her name because she's I think she's out of the business Patricia Morrison and um, also being a musician um, my first thought was wow it's the bass player from the Sisters of Mercy calling 
which I knew wasn't. But um, she identified herself as a search agent and said she could possibly, um, with the information I posted, she thought she could um, be of assistance. And I asked, well, how much? Again, going back to the $20,000 price tag that was in the back of my mind from previous discussions. And she said, well, it would be 250 to start. And the cynic in me kind of said, and? And she said, oh, it would be 250 to close. And I thought, oh, that's, that's a whole lot better than 20000 And then she stopped and said, oh, wait, 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 you're in California. There's a surcharge. And I thought, here it comes. And she said, it's $100. And I said, well, let me discuss this with my husband and get back to you. So we talked. And he said, yeah, you know, for 250 give it a toss. We're not, we're really not convinced she could even close. So I called her back and PayPal'd her the deposit, and she um, gave me my mother's maiden name, which was a very unique, very specific maiden name. And um, she said she had some leads to follow, and she would call me back. Well, at that time... Um, some other information my birth parents had given, my adopted parents had given me throughout the years was that my birth parents were from Michigan and Detroit. And I Googled the name that she gave me as a uh, maiden name for my mother, and it came up in Grand Rapids. And I found a business affiliated with that name, and I thought, maybe my adopted parents didn't lie after all. The search agent had given me my mother's maiden name, which was very distinct, and um, I was looking for that. And then she called back and informed me that that was not her maiden name, actually, that she herself was adopted and um, was currently remarried and living in Montana. So that was kind of interesting. She gave me her married name and said she wasn't answering the phone. And this was all happening by this time. This was Friday evening. And... Um, she said, I've really got some leads to go on, but because it's Friday, people aren't answering. So she goes, let's let's just like table this until Monday morning. Well, by that point, I really couldn't put it down. So I Googled the information she gave me for a new married name and discovered my birth mother's obituary, which had taken place 18 months previously. And what was interesting, it was a church that had posted it. And as I looked through their archives, I realized that they only went back 18 months. So had this search happened a month later, her obituary probably would not have been available to me. So what I did was I called the church on Sunday because it's a church and you figure somebody's going to be there. <laughs> and um, they didn't answer. It went to a message machine. And I hadn't heard from Patricia on Monday, so I called the church back, and they were a little, um, yeah, we got your message. Um, hmm. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I identified my birth mother, and I said, I'm her son. And he said, no shit, she had a son. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, this is a church. <laughs> but he suggested I talk to the woman at the funeral home that had taken care of the, um, the services, and I called her. And I identified myself, and she said the same thing. She goes, no shit, she had a son. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, okay. And at this point, she directed me to call the bank because the president of the bank had been the executor of my birth mother's estate. So I called, and I asked to speak to him, and I got kind of an officious woman that said, well, what is this regarding? And I gave him my birth mother's name and said, um, I believe I'm her son. And she didn't say no shit, but she said, Sarah, 
they got somebody on the phone and she's got a son. So they put me through and um, the bank manager was the first one that didn't say no shit. So that was encouraging. And we talked for a while and he gave me some background and he suggested I talk to her best friend. And I thought, wow, another call. So I did. And I called and identified myself and explained the situation. And this woman um, answered and she said, I know who you are. And she says, I'm probably the only person your mother um, talked to about this. And what began was um, a friendship and a series of phone calls that led to um, the story of my birth parents as it happened in Montana, that they were living there for about 10 years. I was put in contact with several other people and um, it turned out that um, my birth father was, um, what would be the term? They, they didn't quite know what about him. He was rather mysterious about his past and he told everybody he was an orphan and his behavior was erratic at best and they, um, he lost his job there in the town they were in, relocated north to Montana. And it was at this point he had found another woman that apparently had gotten involved with, and my birth mother was recovering from a back injury. And he attempted to murder her by pouring all of the sleeping pill, not sleeping pills, pain pills she was taking for her back injury down her throat. She did wake up and sort of sensed what was going on because her profession had been a nurse and she roused herself, called friends to pick her up and divorced my birth father and moved back to the town she was in with her friends. And that was all anybody knew about my birth father. So they said that um, my birth mother, because of the back injury, she never really worked again, but had met an older man and the two of them had homesteaded um, a place, lived kind of rough in a trailer out in a pasture, had lots and lots of animals and um, enjoyed each other, had a good life. And then he had died about 10 years previously and she had lived on this um, homesteading place until she was supposed to have some medical procedures, but didn't. The doctor had wanted her to come in to have her arteries checked and I think possibly cleaned out or something along those lines. And she was telling her friends that um, maybe they should check on her regularly. And on Labor Day of 2005, she didn't answer and they went out and she had passed away from congestive heart failure. What was interesting was all of the test medicine and prescriptions her doctor had given her were left untouched and not filled, whereas the refrigerator was completely full of medicine for her animals. And she had also left a small insurance policy to cover um, the care of her animals after she left. Well, with this information, I contacted Patricia and she couldn't find anything on my birth father. He had a very common name that um, was very, very hard to check. But I kept talking to the people in Montana, and we eventually went up for a visit, and everybody there was amazingly um, generous with their time and efforts and sharing their memories. And little things came up about my father, and they didn't want to come out and say it to me, but the inclination I got was he may have been, if not bisexual, possibly, possibly closeted gay, 
And also the subject of drug use was kind of brought up in a roundabout sort of way. Um, as we were leaving, one of the guys said, um, oh, there was a priest that used to come down here and work um, in the business that my father was involved in. He would be a really good person to talk to. And this was the first I'd heard of this person. And they gave us his name. And my husband had done some searches and found three names in Montana that matched and left messages with all three and the day before we were to drive home, I got a call in a very booming voice, um, asked me if this was David Roundsley and if I was the son of the parents that I was. And I did. I said yes. And he said, we absolutely have to meet. And I said, well, we're about to drive back to California today. And he was um, quite a bit north, further north in Montana. But we said, um, we looked at each other and said, yeah, we'll go for it. So we met him. And out of everybody we had met so far, he was the first and only person that said, your father was a very good friend of mine. And things that he said indicated the friendship may have been a bit deeper than that. Um, but he was equally puzzled about my father, who had completely dropped off the map about the time that my birth mother um, knew him. And um, was very, very interested in knowing what he could about my father. Um, as everybody I had met, he just sort of vanished. And what was amazing, this was a good 30 years after his leaving that town. Not a single person I met said who. Everybody knew exactly who I was talking to, had a firm, very clear memory, and all of them had um, memories of him. So um, what be then began was um, kind of my own search, utilizing everything I could find from Google to Ancestry.com to whatever. And I had also signed up for 23andMe as a DNA service um, and was getting matches. But again, his name was so common, nothing was really coming together. So um, we had, I kept in contact with people in Monta Montana, and then they mentioned him coming through town on his way to Washington state and had named a city. So I ran that by the search agent and she found him. She said, aha, I have him. Um, and um, she had an address, but there was no phone listing. But again, because he was kind of a secretive person, um, I wasn't absolutely sure this was the right person and I didn't want to go charging up. So we discussed it and we said, you know, would it be good to find maybe a private investigator or something to help? And as it turned out, even though this wasn't a large town in Washington state, it was in Eastern Washington, there was a private investigator listed um, not far away. And we engaged his services and he, um, he went to the house and um, his report back was, it was kind of a different house. It was not in the best neighborhood, not in the worst neighborhood, almost your Goldilocks neighborhood, the thoroughly middle class. But of it, their house stood out because there was a gate around, a fence all the way around it with beware of dog, beware of dog. There were security cameras all around, which in 2007 wasn't overly common. And also a big heavy security gate on the front door and a buzzer you had to buzz out by the gate. You couldn't actually go up to the front door. So he rang the bell and a woman came to the door and was a little on the abrasive side and just said um, it wasn't a good time. 
so what began was about a four to five week period of him um, keeping surveillance on the house and noticed that this woman would leave the house um, about, you know, nine-ish in the morning, come back around one or one or 12 and go back and come back in the afternoons. And um, he would go up and ring the doorbell when this woman left but got no answer. And finally, I said, you know, um, this isn't going to, it's just not going to work that you keep ringing the doorbell there where somebody's coming to the door. And I said, what I think might work would be for you if you had a, um, a woman that you worked with, a female operative that could just kind of go up and be a little more casual. And um, so he did have somebody. And what happened was she went up one day and there was a young girl sitting in the front yard with a German shepherd. And she very breezily said, oh, hi, is my father's name home and the woman said oh no they're out shopping but they'll be home tonight and she goes okay i'll come back later so i was psyched that day and I, I i kind of warned um the investigator that i'd heard stories that my father had guns that he had pulled guns on people that um he was um, a questionable person and to be very careful so that night i waited and waited and I didn't hear anything that night and then nothing the next day and nothing the next day and my concern level was getting a little high when finally he called me and he said well I didn't call you right away because I've actually done this before I've actually approached um, birth parents that have either put their kids up for adoption or they've just left the family or whatnot and he goes, generally, he goes, in every case I've done prior to this, they've always called me a day or two later and said, yeah, they want to speak to the child. Um, but he goes, that didn't happen. And he explained that he went to the door. And this time, the dog wasn't out and the gate was open. So they walked right up to the front door. And um, in the meantime, the investigator had asked me to write a letter of introduction and include a photo of myself. So I had, um, I had emailed that to him. And um, when he got to the door, the man who opened the door, he said he looked at the photo of me and looked at the man and he said, I, he goes, I didn't really need a DNA test on that one. He goes, um, it was definitely more than a passing resemblance. In fact, our haircut was exactly the same at that point. I was wearing a um, flat top and so it was my birth father. And um, he presented him with this and my, the man who answered the door did not say it was the wrong man. He said... Um, I'm having marital problems right now. This isn't a good time. And then he kind of made some excuse saying that my birth mother was seeing several men at the time I was born and didn't really follow through on that as though that was the reason why they didn't keep me and did not want to keep the contact information. But he, the investigator handed it to him and he did keep it. After that, knowing it was the right man, we decided to make the trip up to Washington to see him. And um, by that point, my adoptive family was living up in Washington. And as it turned out, my adoptive parents' anniversary was the same day as my birth father's birthday. So we decided to go up, see my adoptive parents for their anniversary, and then go over and see him. So we drove to this small town, got checked, and we drove by the house and we saw a car in front. And we thought, ah, oh, the woman's home, and she's definitely going to be a barricade. So we went and checked into the hotel. And what I had done is, because I knew it was his birthday, I had um, just the previous year released my first album, um, because I'm also a musician. 
and um, put together a little gift bag with the album and a birthday card that basically said, hey, your son's here, and all my contact information. So we went to the house, and the car was gone, and um, my heart was kind of beating. But what I noticed was there were no um, beware of dog signs up. I didn't see any security cameras, and the gate was open. So I was wondering if the um, investigator had maybe embellished to make his surveillance more, um, to qualify the long surveillance. But we went up and, um, uh, you know, my heart was beating pretty hard and I rang the doorbell and there was no answer. And we waited and we waited. So I left the gift bag in the car with a card with my cell phone number in it saying we're here in town. And we left. And throughout the day I kept checking my phone and nothing happened. And that evening we drove by the house and lights were on, but the gift bag was still at the front door. And so we figured, okay, then, you know, whatever. The next morning we went by and the gift bag was gone. So I said, okay. And we went to the door and we knocked again and got nothing. And um, we looked at the cell phone. So that night we went to that, that afternoon, late afternoon, we went back to the house and we went up. So as I was about ready to knock on the door again, um, my husband was looking through the slats of the window, the drapes, the blinds were kind of open and I'm kind of like hissing at him, what are you doing? And he goes, well, the house is empty. And I go, what do you mean? And we went and um, there was not a stitch of furniture in the house. It was completely empty. But what was odd was on the front door was a plaque saying, this is the home of Mr. and Mrs. with the name of my birth father. So I thought this was quite odd because they had a little flag up saying um, trick-or-treaters welcome because this was near Halloween. And there was furniture, lawn furniture in the front. So it looked very inhabited from the outside, but not inside. So we couldn't figure out if maybe they were cleaning the carpets, getting new furniture. So I went back to the hotel and Googled the address and found out that they had sold the house two weeks earlier and moved out. So... We called the realtor and I explained that I was his son trying to reach him. And she said that she would um, relay that to him. And she asked me to call her back in an hour. And when I did, she wouldn't take any of my calls. So at that point, we realized they just, you know, he wasn't going to see me. So we left, drove home. And when I got home, I Googled and I found their address, their new address in um, a small town in Oregon. And what I set up at that point was I started, he's quite a bit older at that point too. So what I did was I set up uh, an alert for obituaries for the small Oregon town that they were in. And my ritual every day was to get up in the morning, open up the page and check the obituaries. And um, I did that every day for quite a while. And on the day Michael Jackson died, um, I'd forgotten to do that. And the news of Michael Jackson's death was, of course, overwhelming the news. And I suddenly said, oh, wait, I haven't looked today. And I went to the page and there was his picture staring at me in his obituary. And what was most interesting was in the obituary, he listed his mother and father, two sisters and brother. So I thought, hmm, orphan. <laughs> well, the, um, the funeral was going to take place in two days, but it was quite far in Oregon and it would have been a two-day drive to go there and I thought since I had attempted to reach them and the woman that was obviously his wife had blocked that I didn't think my presence at the funeral would be particularly welcome and I also didn't think that, that was necessarily the um, best 
best entry point. So what I did was I used the information on the obituary and created a family tree on Ancestry and was um, instantly matched with a tree that showed um, a daughter. So I thought, ah, this may be the daughter of the woman he met after my birth mother. And what was interesting was her tree was kind of incomplete, but it said that her birth mother was listed, but it said deceased. And it also said she was deceased. And I'm thinking, hmm. But I took her name and I Googled it and I came up with a Facebook page um, for her husband that listed her as a wife. So I did not have a Facebook account at this point, and I created one. And as we all know with Facebook now, you know, you have your whole life story on Facebook, pictures, friends, everything. I had the the Facebook profile with the thumbnail with no picture, no friends, no nothing. And I went from her husband's page. There was a page listed for her, and it looked like she was alive. So I sent her a message, and I said, was your birth father so-and-so, and was your birth mother so-and-so? And she answered back right away saying yes. And I did possibly one of the worst Facebook moments you possibly could. And I said, well, your father's dad. And she replied right away, huh, call me tonight and gave me her phone number. And I thought, okay. So I called her. And of course, this was kind of momentous because this was the first person I'm talking to that I was actually related to. And she had a very blasé um, tone. She goes, hmm, he's dead. That's interesting. And I, I shared with her the link to the obituary. And I said, so I have a sister. And she said, no, you have three sisters. And I said, oh. And she explained to me that her mother, she had, she was born as a product with my father and that there was a younger sister but that her birth mother when my father had left her for the current wife in washington went on an information rampage and that would have been back in 1990 oh i take that back 1980 um nine and in that point you could really get a lot of information from the government no questions asked and what she found out was my birth father had been married in Detroit and had a daughter. And that um, when that girl was six weeks, eight weeks old, um, he had scalded her, put her in a bucket of scalding water. And that it looked like she was going to die and that they were ready to press murder charges against him. But she didn't. And um, as a result, um, she had, well, we didn't know what had happened to her. We knew that she didn't die from the scalding and that he was going to be pressed with murder. But then I was wondering if this was my birth mother and if this was a sister related directly to me via my birth mother. And then I knew from the timing of that, which was about 1950, from the time I was born, there was a five-year time before he showed up, before they showed up in Southern California and I was born. But um, her mother and the two girls had been looking for this woman, but all they had was that he'd had a daughter. But we didn't know if she lived. We didn't know what her name was. So in the meantime, I was connected with her younger sister, and we talked on the phone. And finally, she said, would you like to talk to my mother? And I said, absolutely. 
and her mother sent me the most amazing like nine page email detailing their time and lives together and um, shared many intimate aspects to their life that um, my father, my birth father was a swinger, was a probably a, I use Terry Fisher's line on this, a drugs addict, since I don't think it was any one particular drug, and um, very much um, not a nice man. He had been um, in law enforcement, and she explained to me that he would wait until he um, arrested people and then would rough them up when they were handcuffed. And he liked to have guns, and he liked to wave them around and intimidate people. And um, they had met because she had been um, in an abusive relationship, and he had answered a domestic disturbance call two officers. So the one officer had taken her then partner into a room and my father had taken her into another and she was desperate and she had two children from a previous relationship. And he said, I'll find a place for you to live. And that very quickly became an intimate relationship. And she became pregnant with my youngest half sister. But what she then explained to me was that he didn't say he'd been, was married to my birth mother, he just said that he was living with a woman and that she was going back home. And that when they moved into the house, he told her to get rid of the child. And she said, no, I'm not going to do that. So one day she was up in the attic and he came up behind her on the stairs and tried to push her down the stairs. And she held on and he kept pushing and the two of them had the stalemate for 20 minutes when he finally let go. Then she said about um, three or four weeks later, she went into town driving his car because they only had the one car and um, she couldn't stop it. The brakes failed and being kind of a, a Western frontier gal, she just drove it into a bush. And when she went, took it to the garage, they said, um, what happened here, lady? Somebody cut your brake lines. Well, my father explained it, that somebody was out after him and that, you know, she was just the wrong person at the wrong time. She didn't think much of it. But when it was time to deliver the baby, um, she went to the hospital and my father was just furious with her for having the kid. And when she got out, she came back to their apartment and he had cleaned out the apartment and cleaned out their bank account and left. So she called her friends and they found a place for her. And then three weeks later, he called her back and said, oh, you know, I'm sorry, let's make it work. So they got back together, and she said it was interesting. They really did not have much of an intimate relationship, but about a year later, he was trying to entice her to do, her words were um, perverted, kinky things, and she um, implied that he was very much into golden showers and things like this, and he explained his previous partners had always done this but she was not into it. But lo and behold, she got pregnant again, and he was furious. And this time she was walking through the living room, and suddenly he jumped out of a doorway and landed on her back, trying to force her to fall on her stomach, hoping she'd miscarry. But that didn't happen. And um, once again, he drove her to the hospital and just took off without seeing how she was, called her in the hospital and said, did you have a girl? And she said yes, and he hung the phone up, and she got home, and he had cleaned out the bank account and left once again. Well, it turned out, through talking to the people in Montana, at this point in time, he had come back through town looking for my birth mother. 
because I guess she was looking pretty good at this point because she would do all the things that he wanted to. And we had found out she had lost her nursing license at least three times. And the supposition is she was stealing drugs from the doctor's offices for him. So she was an enabler. But by this point, she had remarried. So he went back to this woman. They moved to Washington, and he theoretically found God, and they renewed their wedding vows. And six months later, he came to her and said, I want a divorce. I've met somebody new. And um, this woman said, well, that's fine. But it wasn't really fine because what she did was this is when she went on this informational rampage and found out about the um, the attempt on my older half-sister and everything else about him. So she shared all of this with me, and we actually became very good friends. What I did was I then at that point had written a blog, and some of it was suppositional on my part, but using the things I was kind of filling in the blanks, and it was kind of a dark and not happy portrait of this man. Shortly thereafter, what I had done, too, is we had a fax line that we never used, and it had a message machine on it, oh. and I had put on the blog, you know, if you knew my birth father or birth mother, call me. And um, shortly thereafter, a very stern voice said, um, David, this is, and she had identified herself as my father's last wife, and she said, I saw your blog, call me. Well, I knew she wasn't going to be too happy about it. And I called her back and she said, um, I saw your blog. It's very disturbing. I want you to take it down. And I said, well, you know, at this point, I've now traveled to over five states. I've interviewed well over 30, 40 people. I've documented this. And I said, it's true. And I'm not going to take it down. And she kind of paused and she said, I'll make a deal with you. She says, I'll answer any and all questions you have if you take it down. <sighs> and I thought, well, I really didn't want to take it down because by this point, I had actually been contacted by people in Michigan and other states who had known my birth mother and had known my birth father and had given me information. But I said, reluctantly said, okay. And I asked her as many questions as I could about his health history, his family, what she knew. And she answered, and it was polite in a frosty sort of way. And I said, okay. And I very reluctantly took the blog down. But then about a day later, I had more questions. And I called her back, and I said, yeah, I, I've got some more questions. And surprisingly, she answered them. And then a few days after that, I had some more. And over time, we actually became friends as well. <laughs> um. So in the meantime, though, um, both the woman who was his my birth that we figured was my birth father's third wife, and I were still looking for my older half sister, and I was on ancestry now plugging in things because I had a mother, father, and brothers and sisters for my birth father. I came across a um, family tree by one of his sister's grandchildren. And it was a very poorly done family tree, and it had listed my birth father and his last wife and listed a daughter with a name. And what I knew that was incorrect because my birth father was close to 60 when he married his last wife, and they did not have any children together. So I had a name, and I Googled the name, and nothing came up. 
nothing. And at this point, I had been using some investigative services that were using going into the darker web for some information. So I asked my husband, can I, can I go there one more time? And he said, sure. And it yielded one piece of identification. It gave me a phone number. And I dialed it the next day, and it said the number was disconnected. But I Googled the phone number, and it showed a rehabilitation clinic in New Hampshire. Well, I thought, well, of course, my first thought was, oh, this isn't good. You know, I mean, I knew she was called it as a young child. You know, what, what, what did this yield as a life? So I called the rehabilitation facility, and I asked to speak to the name that I had. And the woman there was like, oh, well, she left a while ago. You should give her a call at home. And I said, well, you know, there's um, no phone listing. And the woman uh, at the desk said, well, here, let me give you her number. And that was stupid on my part. But I said, you can't do that. <laughs> there's HIPAA laws and privacy laws. And she goes, really? And I said, yeah, go ask your supervisor. So she um, went and she came back and she said, oh, you're right. <laughs> And I, I kind of like, hmm, and, and, and she says, well, well, why do you want to talk to her? And I started to relay this rather sprawling epic story, and she stopped me, and she said, I don't think she's lucid enough to really grasp all of this. She says, but I can call her for you, which I thought was amazing. And I gave her two potential last names of my birth father because he changed his name. And Detroit, I said, call her and ask her if these names in the city of Detroit means anything to her. And if so, I might possibly be a relative. And she said, okay. And I sat, and about 15 minutes later, the phone rang. And possibly the tiniest voice I've ever heard in my life said, hello? And I said, hello. And she goes, what's this about? And I asked, I said, was your father? And I gave the name of the second name that he had changed it to. And she said, no. She said, my father was, and the name she gave was actually his, the name he used on his birth certificate. And I said, well, I believe I'm your half-brother. And she said, well, who was your mother? And I gave her the first name of my birth mother, and she gasped, and she said, I met her. And I said, well, I was adopted. And then she broke into tears and said she was adopted as well. And we talked on the phone for a close to three and a half hours and she told me her saga of um, her birth mother and my birth father were unemployed um, and probably drug addicts living with his aunt and when she was six months old they had locked my her aunt out of the house and the aunt heard screaming and when the aunt finally broke the door down and got in found this small six-week-old child scalded screaming and she called the police, and the police removed my birth father and his then wife and said, you know, if, if this child doesn't make it, you're going to be charged with murder. But as it turned out, she did make it. But um, his aunt said, I'm going to raise her and kicked, kicked them out of the house. So then she fast forwarded to, she was about four, four and a half. Her, she called her mom, but it was her great aunt. Um, said, well, we're going to go see your mom and your father today. They were in a tuberculosis ward in Detroit. So what they did was they drove to this um, clinic, and it was winter, and they stood in the parking lot, and they looked up, and there was a man at the window 
that my sister had never seen that waved and she waved back and then they moved down and there was a woman at a window that waved and um then and she didn't know who they were and that was it and then about three four months later her 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 mom her aunt said um your father's coming to dinner with a friend so she was all excited and she looked in this very 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 thin gaunt man and um a shorter woman um who was carrying a medical bag walked up the door and he came in the door and sat down in the living room and being a little child, she went and she went up to him and tried to sit in his lap and he shooed her away because he thought bugs were crawling all over his body and he was twitching and scratching. And the woman he was with said, oh, um, he needs his medicine and um, pulled out her bag and gave my birth father an injection. And then he kind of calmed down and it turned out that that woman was my birth mother and was a nurse that met him while he was in the tuberculosis ward. So um, he had left his wife there and and his wife, my older sister's mother, had met another man in there, so they all switched partners. So that was the first time she really met her father. And then about five, six months later, they got a call that my father and my birth mother were leaving Detroit and he wanted my older sister to come to say goodbye. So she went with her aunt to this kind of eh, apartment building. And when they came in, my birth mother was putting semi-automatic rifles into cases that were strewn all about the apartment. And um, my, I guess my great aunt just kind of raised her eyebrows and my mother explained, well, we're gonna need to take these with us when we go out west for protection. And um, my father said, we just have to get out of Detroit very quickly and we will call you when we settle out west. And that was the last time she saw my father or, or my birth mother. After that, they got a couple of letters and um, she received a dress and a card and some money, but that was the last they heard. But then they started getting phone calls at the house identifying themselves as the FBI, wanting to know where my father was. And the aunt kept saying, I, I have no idea where he is. And when my older sister started school, um, according to the teachers, a black car would follow her from the house to school every day. And then finally, one night, about 11 o'clock, there was a knock on the door and her aunt went to answer it. And she, from the stairway, she could see a man kind of almost dressed in the sort of Elliot Ness style, because this was still just coming out of the fifth, you know, this was still in the fifties, um, and um, had the hat and the trench coat. And he obviously asked where my birth father was. And um, my great aunt said, I had no idea. And he slugged her, just decked her right there on the spot. Um, my older sister freaked out, but um, the aunt said, no, don't call the police, don't call anybody. And that was it after that. So, Life went on in the house, but my aunt also had diabetes very bad and was developing huge ulcers on her legs. And by the time my older sister was seven, no, I take that back, about 11, 11 or so, um, they told her she needed to go to the hospital, the aunt, and she said, I can't because they're going to put um, my older sister into, into care. And she eventually died at the dining room table, just sitting up, just screaming in agony. 
and my um, sister had to go around the house and find all the silver dollars she'd gotten for Christmases and birthdays and pick out a dress and um, arrange for my great aunt's funeral. And at that point, she became kind of a ward of the state and kicked around between other aunts and relatives until she finally moved to um, Georgia with a cousin and met the first man that, that showed her any attention. And turned out he was an alcoholic and he was closeted gay and beat her and was abusive. They had two children. They moved to New Hampshire and she finally, after 20 years of marriage, said, I'm leaving you and met a very, very nice man who she's still with. But um, two years after that, her son was driving and they were having an argument in the car and he flipped the car and she was not wearing a seatbelt and her right head was crushed in and she lost the use of her right eye. She had brain damage. Um, she had a scoliosis condition that was exasperated and she's been um, fighting various disability things ever since. But ever since I've met her back then, which was in 2010 on the phone, we talk every day for at least an hour. So um, it's still an ongoing um, exploration as in 2015, 23 and me said, oh, you have a half-brother. And I was matched with an older half-brother who was born in New York um, about three years before my what I thought was the oldest sister. And we've been we've been connected and we all stay in touch. And um, it's it's all worked out pretty well, with the exception of the two youngest sisters who are very um, religious. I, I joke that their Bible belt is so tight it cut off the oxygen to their heads. But so we are not in um, communication any longer. But um, the story isn't completely finished as through the various DNA services, I've been matched with over 200 people on my mother's side, but because she's adopted, we have yet been, we've not been able to connect the dots. And I'm currently embroiled in fighting, petitioning the state of California to get my opened birth certificate, which I know what it says, but I actually want the certificate. And I need that to go to Michigan to show um, paternity or maternity with my mother so that I can get her original birth certificate and then hopefully match things up with the DNA relatives on that side. Go ahead and continue. I was just going to ask you uh, what kind of advice you would give other people who are adopted and maybe looking for their birth parents. Um, you know, it's interesting and everybody's different. Um, my... Um, you know, I think it depends on, on what you feel inside and what you're looking for. I never fit in with my adopted family. Um, and I have theories about why people adopt. And, you know, there's a very primal urge for people to have children. But I also notice that people want to see a bit of themselves continue on in their progeny. And, and, and I know that people have their own children and they're completely off the charts, not at all like anybody else in the family. But with adoption, you obviously run the risk of, of you know, of a being very different. And while I don't consider myself to be a phenomenally bright person, there was a very big lag between myself and my um, adoptive family, the entire family, um, um, you know, without being mean, I mean, Basically, they were kind of dull people. They were very, they were not inquisitive about anything in life. And there would be many family meals where they would have a 25-minute discussion over who made the best mashed potatoes. 
Um, I mean, I was ready to just take a butter knife in my eye and just end it. It would, some of these conversations were so small. Um, for looking, you know, a lot of people that I've shared this story with, they're, they're fascinated by it, but they've also said, oh, my God, this is just such a terrible story. Aren't you sorry you looked? And I'm not. Um, because it, 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 it's, it's helped define me and I, I can see the nature versus nurture aspects in my own personality and abilities. One of the things that was kind of a driving force for me is music is always was, is, and always will be a very driving passion for me. And I started playing piano, self-taught piano early on. And, um, I just released my ninth album and um you know i record and play everything myself and i when i met the people in montana one of the questions was well, were my parents musical and um her best friend looked at her husband and she said you know well they used to play country western occasionally and i told her i said i can put up with swinging drug addiction and attempted murder but i can't put up with country western <laughs> <laughs> and they laughed but um, one of the things I did going through Ancestry and going through and finding, the because Ancestry now has really gotten a lot of public records. So I was able to match the census from 1910, 20, 30, and up to 1940. And what was interesting was my grandfather, my, my father's father was a twin, and um, they also had another brother. And all three of them were piano players, professional musicians in Detroit. So I was like, okay, I, yeah, it's there. I, I kind of got that. So I mean, I, I think it's a. I think a lot of people have a very idealized version, which is, I think, part of the problem why I'm no longer in in communication with my younger sisters was they had a very idealized version of what um, my older sister would be and what I would be, and because of their. Um, you know, and I don't want to say everybody in small town has has got a narrow um, viewpoint. But they had a very stereotypical small town feel, and they're very um, they're very homophobic. They're very um, very 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 politically conservative as well. Um, so I was kind of you know that kind of made me the no fly zone right there. And when I did connect them with my older sister because she was disabled and living almost on the poverty, well, actually she was living at the poverty line at that point, um, you know, they, they, there was no interest to follow through there. Um, so it, it depends on, you know, I think that they have this image that it would be these wonderful people and, you know, running through the hills in slow motion from the sound of music or something. So, I mean, if people really want to know, to be prepared for what they're going to find, because obviously something was amiss that they would want to put a child up for adoption in the first place. Um, am I glad I was adopted? Hearing the story, I, I, this was my own It's a Wonderful Life. I could actually go through and see the things. I mean, I've, I've left a lot of details out, but my, my mother and father were together for 20 years, and in many ways they were enablers, and they were sort of Bonnie and Clyde. They, they left town without paying rent. Um, there was just a lot of chicanery, and it wouldn't have been good for me growing up. Um, were my adoptive parents ideal? No, they weren't. But um, I'm lucky enough that I, I came through it with a sense of self that um, I wasn't, I didn't allow myself to be cowed by their limitations either. I, you know, and if anything, this has made me much more resolute as to who I am, what I am, and very unapologetic 
um, about it. I don't feel I need to. And uh, it's it's been a good experience for me. It's been and it's and again, it's not completely over. I'm I'm still still in the throes of of it. I'm in the process of documenting it as a book. I'm about 200 pages in, but I suspect it's going to have a good two to 300 pages more before I finish it. I am putting the story out there because I I, um, I, I keep finding people that knew these people. And, um, I'm, I, and what I've found with a lot of these people that knew them was they all wanted to know what happened. Um, they, they, they understood that something was a little amiss with them. And also, I, I, I now become kind of a, a, a fierce advocate for um, people knowing these things. You, you need, you know, going through life, um, well, being, having the conditional love from my adopted parents and being adopted, I never really felt like a, a I felt like a second or third class citizen. And, you know, when you go to medical now, especially nowadays, the first thing they ask you on any time you go in there is, does it run in the family? Well, you know, you, you, you need that information and, and whether it's mental illness or cancer or whatever, you know, this is, this is information that can help, help you. And I'm, I'm fighting a fierce war with the state of California and also in the state of Michigan to get my birth mother's original birth certificate. And what I've encountered here is the state has a, protocol and process you have to go through but what's fascinating is no forms exist and they use really wishy-washy terms like there needs to be a compelling reason for this and i'm like you know you're again the state these laws in most of these states are designed to protect the parents and the children be damned i mean you're just collateral i just i you know and, and in many ways i was just you know put up for the highest bidder um it, it, as it turned out, in my case, it was private adoption, and um, it turned out the lawyer that was brokering the deal had, a, had expressed interest in adopting me, but he already had three children and changed his mind. And, um, well, again, I, I kind of left this part out. So I was, um, the adoption was arranged before I was born in Long Beach, and then my mother got the call the day I was born, and they said, hey, congratulations, you are a parent. Um, come to the hospital, don't go to the nursery, don't talk about children, don't talk about adoption, go to nursing station 12, ask for Shirley, and bring two pieces of ID. Well, you know, people didn't have a lot of ID back then. <laughs> and what turned out was my birth mother worked at the hospital at the time of my birth, and she did not sign off on the adoption. In fact, my adoptive parent, my birth parents vanished after I was born. And the fear was that I was going to be kidnapped by them. So I was kept in, uh, I don't know what the hell I was. I guess I was in hospital jail for a week <laughs> since there was no medical reason. And then my parents um, took me, but with no legal claim. And at that point, they had bought a new home um, close to Disneyland in a new development down there and moved me down there. And when my year of birthday was coming up, um, I still, my birth parents had not appeared. So they had to go to um, court and file child abandonment charges. And at that point then, which is around my, my first birthday, um, apparently the lawyer said that my birth parents walked in the door and he was like, oh, um, 
didn't expect to see you. Let me go get the paperwork. And when he came back, they were gone. About an hour later, they came in, sat down, signed the paperwork, and left. So that was that. Except doing the ancestry work that I did and doing the um, city directories and census, it turns out my birth parents moved less than a mile away from my adoptive parents right after I was born and lived about six, lived there for about six years. And I now have pictures of my birth father in the same bowling league that my parents were in and they were taking dance lessons at the same place. So it was very muddied. So I, I get, and I sort of veered off the story here, but for other people looking to look, you don't know what you're gonna find and you kind of need to be braced for better or for worse. But overall, it's been good. I've been, um, I'm very happy. I met my older brother and older sister. Um, we, we all stay in touch um, and feel very close and very connected. I've met a lot of extended family from people on both sides, and they've been very welcoming to us. And despite the negative and almost true crime aspects to some of the story, um, I, I'm very happy I did it, and I will continue until I've exhausted all of the um, information corners that I can look in.